Welcome to this episode of Studio B. I am your host, Sarah Scott. Massive thank you going out to everyone who listened to episode one. It started with the song part one with Shard Morrison. And we had so much fun with Shard Morrison last time we brought him back to talk about. It started with the song part two. Yes, so part one was all about writing your best song. We talked about how to keep up with trends and how to write in your unique voice how to be true to yourself. We talked about structure, storytelling. We talked about writer's block. We talked about co-writing and everything in between. We took a massive deep dive into writing your best song with Shard Morrison. Now this week on Studio B, Shard Morrison is back to talk about getting your song out to the world. It's a pretty big topic, songwriting. That is why we put it into a two-part feature kind of a thing. (laughs) So it started with the song part two. We are talking about, okay, so your song is done. You want to bring it out to the world. You want to show it off. You want to display it as you should. Love your music, you know? Well, we are talking about what do you do after the song has been written. We dive into editing. We dive into how to prepare your song for the studio, what to expect in the studio with your song. We talk about how to promote it and we talk about how to get the word out about your single and where to do it and when it is an appropriate time to bring out certain kinds of songs like slower songs in the winter and faster, more lively songs in the summer or maybe you want to do it the opposite way and stand out from the crowd. We are just doing some deep dives, like I said, into this topic as well. Well, so I'm going to reintroduce you here to Shard Morrison. He is a songwriter, lyricist, entertainer, background vocalist, MC, host, and well, let's just say it is easier to call him a professional jack of all trades. He says that he will always be a student of song, but this guy is our resident expert this weekend when it comes to songwriting once again, and he truly is very, very skilled. He's very looked up to, and he is an asset, a huge one in the Canadian music industry as a whole. He has worked with tons of emerging independent and established musicians in all genres and he also owns Shattered Glass Entertainment and he is one of the ringleaders of Calgary Songsmiths, the largest independent songwriting group in Canada. Welcome back to the studio, Shard Morrison. It is a huge pleasure to have you back. Let's get back into it. It is It Started With a Song, part two on Studio B. I am your host, Sarah Scott. Welcome back. Thank you so much. So I'm going to get you kind of reintroduce yourself again to the audience. This is part two of It Started With a Song. We're going to be talking about the song is done. It's raw. It's out. Now what? The fine tuning and studio things and releasing it and everything in between. But yeah, let's kind of get reintroduced to you in a second. It's been about a week. Give or take. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's been a wonderful weather here in uh, Alberta, which is always good to see. In the fall, for sure. So tell us a bit about your background again. Well, um, I am a a six foot five uh, songwriter uh, with a heart of gold. Um, I've had the pleasure of writing uh, 
countless songs with many, many different artists, all from independent all the way up to established and releasing. And uh, I'm very uh, honored and humbled to be here on your, your show. Well, we're honored and humbled to have you here. And you also have Shattered Glass. You're a part of Songsmiths, and you're just killing it. Yeah, I'm all over the map. We got the <laughs> ACMA, Alberta Music. If there's a thing with country in it, I'm chances are you'll see me somewhere in the background. And also any other genre as well, because with Studio B, we do talk to every genre, even though both of us work in country essentially, you know, those are our passions, but we love all kinds of music and we love all musicians and emerging and established and everything in between in this crazy thing we call the music industry. So sure, the song is done. (laughs) It's raw. The musician is attached to it. It's their heart. It's their soul. It's their words. We got to talk about that. Like, what do you do next? What is happening after the song has come out? So, so this is now after we have written the song. At the end of the writing session, we, we do what's called a work tape. And uh, that work tape is, is just the person in the room with a guitar, and we sing it front to back. That's what we do. After that point in time, the song takes on a brand new life because now you're out of the creative phase. And now we have to, for all intents and purposes, edit it. Oh, and man, the editing. The, the editing phase, uh. and that is heartbreaking sometimes. Well, I want to bring this up, and this is why I want to talk about editing, because this is where I learned about editing the most, actually, was with a song by Robbins Avenue called Home. And this was back in May, I think, when I brought this up to you. And this is what really was like, whoa, wait, what? So I got into the studio with Ty of Robbins Avenue, and I've heard the original, and I'm like, oh, this is so good. This is amazing. But then Josh Gwillem at OCL Studios totally throwing that name out there because he's a really cool dude and he did an amazing thing with his song. He cut out so much of the lyrics from that song and I'm like, but why? They were all so beautiful and heartfelt and great, but he just cut it back, which in the end is not a bad thing when it comes to editing a song, like keeping it kind of simple and clean. So let's talk about the editing process. That seems really like, wait, what? (laughs) <laughs> it's true. Um, so, so now that you have this 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 work tape that you've you've listened to, and and hopefully, if if you're going into the, the studio to cut one song, you've written more than one song. Hopefully, you're you're able to choose from say ten songs, ideally, and all of them are just you and a guitar, and they're raw, and they're 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 that's where it is. But now, you've you shared them with um, I call them an uh, an inner sanctum, an inner five, and they're five people that don't know who the other people are. And when I think a song has potential. I send it to these people because you need an outside opinion on it. And the reason is because I've written the song. I am attached to this song. I am attached to every word and every lyrical device and every little piece in there is is meaningful to me. But I've learned over the years, I can't be trusted. What? (laughs) I can't be trusted because... I am personally attached to this song. I think it is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I believe in this song beyond anything else, but I am not my target demographic. So I have what is called the, the, my inner five, my, my, my inner sanctum five. And they don't know any of the other people who are in this group. And what happens is, is every now and then I send them an email and I ask them for their honest opinion of the song. And it's got to be their honest opinion of the song. And I test them regularly and they hate it. But when I do send them real stuff, they're super excited. And the reason I send it to these inner five is because their opinions will dictate if it goes to the next phase, which is getting ready for studio, if it is quote unquote worthy or not. Because what I may think is a great song, I've sent to these five individuals and they change over the years. And they come back to me saying, well, this is actually really cool. Or I don't like the chorus and I don't like the bridge. And this, I, I don't understand why you like this so much. 
And the hardest thing I've done is listen to these outside voices because if the shard, if, if the song is for shard, shard's going to buy the song, but the song is not for shard. And that's the big thing I got to keep reminding myself. So if all of them come back with different pieces, that's opinion. They're entitled to opinion. I can take it or I can leave it. But if in these five individuals, it comes back and two of them say, well, I don't like your chorus. To me, that means I need to look at that chorus. Or it's like, we don't understand what the song's about, which means I need to do some rewriting on the words. They like the melody, but that means I need to rewrite it. And that means potentially, I now have to cut this thing that I love so much into pieces, which is so hard. Mm-hmm. The other reason I send it out to this, this group of five people is because sometimes that break from me not looking at that song every day is enough to give me a new set of eyes once their feedback comes back. And that's when I get to cut it. So I can potentially take a look at that chorus or I can potentially modify the, the verses to be a little more succinct and clear. Or maybe, maybe my five minute and 33 second masterpiece is not, does not have to be five minutes and 33 seconds. And I actually do have to cut it down to under three minutes and 30. And that is hard because you believe in it so much. You believe every solo has to happen. You believe all the harmonicas need to be there and the, the keyboard solos and the, the slide tin whistles and all this kind of stuff is core and relevant to the song, but it's personal attachment. And that is so hard about that. So when you get this raw work tape, it is so important to make sure you like what is there because the more you hear it, the more right it's going to be. And when I say right, I'm using quotation marks for you folks at home that can't see my hands. <laughs> so if you put placeholder word in there, and they've slipped into some of the biggest songs out there, where it's like, everything's great about this, but all of a sudden there's that one line where you're kind of like, wait, what? But it happens so quick, you forget about it. They're a placeholder that happened in the work tape, and for whatever reason, passed all these levels of filters and made it into the final edit. Sometimes they're fine. Sometimes you know they're not there. Sometimes it's the the spoon, June, moon thing or the realize eyes kind of thing. And it happens because you've heard it so much. So so you really have to edit and, and get it to where it is acceptable for the general public and not just you and the co-writer you're working with. And that's part one. And that is probably the hardest part because rewriting is not an easy task. I think the best way it was described by the Northern Pikes was burn the babies. I'm like, that's a very graphic dis description of that so i'm not going to really use that but i wrote it in my notes so i'm bringing it up it's burning true. the babies it's so gross sometimes we have to cut a limb <laughs> off of a, a song like they're all our they're all our children they're all our babies but we honestly have to admit that sometimes we like some children more than others or sometimes we like uh, this baby's cuter than that baby and sometimes we just this is really going downhill fast. Yep. We're just going to stop talking about burning <laughs> babies and we're going to talk about how if a musician doesn't have those five people or even one or two people to go to to get that song edited down to a more audience-relatable kind of situation, how should they look at it themselves? Best way I can do it is listen to it from someone who has never heard the song before. As writers, we make a lot of leaps and bounds in our trains of thought. We may have presented in two lines a scenario, but we have not presented the back end of the scenario. Example, let's take a song called Blue Shoes. Why not? Great, great little thing. And I get to the chorus and it's this really sad song about blue shoes. And I share it with my, these inner five people and they came back to me saying, we don't understand why the song's so sad. Why not? 
Don't you realize that the grandma passed these shoes on to the, the mother and the mother passed it to the daughter and the daughter lost these blue shoes and, and this is a big deal. These have been passed down from generations. And they look at me and like, well, we didn't know that. Well, how do you know you didn't know that? It's part of the song. And then you go back and read the song and realize you did not put that in the song. This is, this is a, a, an inflection or, or hope from the micro details we have from an inception point of an idea that we have not relayed to the listener. The listener is only able to see what we present them. So that's why it's so important to make sure they understand the place and, and story you're saying. Mm-hmm. So they're on the same page. And as soon as they, my inner five told me that, I can go back and go, well, I got to set up why these blue shoes are so important. And that is a critical part of, again, you working with this idea and knowing what it is and you seeing the music video in your own head. But now that you're sharing it with other people, you now get to realize, am I able to share that, that Polaroid and they can see what I'm seeing? So that is really hard. And sometimes to do that, I actually don't listen to a song for two weeks. And then I play it again with new ears because I've written three or four more songs in that time. When I listen to it again, it's like, oh, well, I have to change this, this, and this because this doesn't make sense. Because you're looking at the veins of a leaf instead of the tree, Hmm. right? And sometimes you just got to change your perspective. And sometimes space is the best thing you can do to make you step back and realize, hey, I've missed the mark. I got to go back and really refine this because this song is something special. That's pretty cool. I never heard it that way before, but I like it. So now you've edited the song and you're thinking that it's audience ready. It's a radio ready. They want to go into the studio with this song. And how do they do that? How do they prepare a song for an in-studio session? I am going to uh, say one of the biggest pieces of advice that was passed down to me and it has honestly been a game changer when I get songs ready for studio. When we do that that work tape, it's live off the floor. It's you, me, and a guitar, and we don't have anything on there. The second you go into a studio, they work everything in uh, time, actual rhythms. In fact, they have a click track that's in time. So if you think this song is ready to go into the studio, best thing you can do is get a metronome, get a click track, and play it one more time to that click track. The reason is, once they put it into Pro Tools and everything else, they build the song around it. They make sure the BPMs are where they need to be. They make sure all of that is where it needs to be to start building the track. But one of the reference tracks you always go back to is the song you give them. So if you have fluctuating time in it, if you have, you know, my verse is this tempo, but then suddenly I'm really excited and I go into my chorus at this tempo and then I go back to my verse tempo. It's not a consistent 4-4 tempo. It's not a consistent 110 beats per minute. So doing it to a metronome is honestly one of the strongest things you can give to a producer when you're ready for it to go to the studio because now they can put a click track and always reference back to the original as they build the song. That is the biggest piece of advice I can give you before going into the studio. That's really good advice. Really good advice. What should a songwriter walk into the studio with? What kind of product should they present to the producer? Ideally, you have that that finished uh, product. You have that, that click track recording, but then you can give them production notes. So what will happen is, is, is you'll go in, and I'm sure uh, you're going to have another guest talking about this side of things. Sure am. What I always go in with is I'll sit down with the producer that I've chosen. Here's the song I've picked. And I usually have two that I'm happy to record either one and sometimes both. And we'll sit down with the producer and the producer will ideally say, I really like option A or I really like option B or you know what? Yeah, let's do both. And what I have is I have production notes. So in the writing session or as I've been listening to the the work tape, I've started singing lines to it, right? Or, Or little melody lines. 
And so what we'll do is we'll sit down in the studio and we'll play it. Before I say anything, I let the producer listen to it first. And I let them kind of get a feel for it. And they're going to ask you some questions. What were you feeling when you wrote it? Get kind of the mindset of what you're after. And then we go into production notes. And that almost becomes a co-write 2.0. Because it's like, here's what I'm hearing. They'll play it again. You sing the parts. And they'll say, well, I'm kind of hearing this beat here. Or I'm kind of hearing a layering thing here. And, And we're going to kind of come to a agreement with the direction the producer should take for the finished good. And then that's where you put your faith and trust into the producer and the musician's team that you've acquired for this project. Thanks for joining us for Studio B this week. My name is Sarah Scott, your host, here to talk about a really cool group run out of Calgary. They support both new and established writers right here in Alberta. You've heard Char talk about them quite a few times. They're Canada's largest independent songwriters group. They've been going strong for 16 years, which is super awesome. You probably know who I'm talking about. The Calgary Songsmiths. These guys are awesome. I've had the opportunity to go to two of their sessions, one on a regular Tuesday night, and then one was a summer school session with the Northern Pikes. And both times I was so inspired as not just a writer, but also as an industry professional. And I was so happy with what they are and have been doing for new and established writers, singers, songwriters, and emerging independent artists. They have workshops, resources, mentoring opportunities to perform, and educational sessions on different aspects of the songwriting business. There are no membership fees, and the sessions are open to all ages. They gather every third Tuesday of the month at Waves Coffee House in the Southwest 30 Springboro Boulevard Southwest. You can find out more details on their Facebook page under Calgary Songsmiths on Instagram or on Twitter and make sure you keep checking back for updates on sessions and events on their Facebook or Instagram pages as well. The Calgary Songsmiths keep doing what you're doing. I absolutely love it and I'm happy to get the word out for you. Definitely. And we are going to be doing a whole other podcast with a producer in the future here, but kind of we're going to talk about this too. As a songwriter, people are kind of a little bit nervous about walking into the studio with a single, like the producer, they're worried that they may not like it, or they're going to do too much to it, or they're going to do nothing at all and just take their money and run kind of a thing, which is a product. What should a singer, songwriter, emerging artist, or independent artist expect from a producer or an engineer or a studio session player? What should they expect with them to do with the song? That's a great question because it, it honestly depends on what your goal with the song is. If you're going in to do a demo, um, there are various levels of demo. We have clean guitar, clean vocal, done with really expensive gear and equipment so it sounds clean and clear and everything is good. Mm-hmm. If you're going in on that front, all that you're expecting them to do is track you. Your, your guitar will have a line, your voice will have a line, and you're able to get a very clean, very professional sounding recording of it. Then there are different levels. You could add drums, you could add keyboards, you could add guitars, and each level is going to be a different price point, and each thing is going to add a different level to the song. If they're looking just to kind of chord it, they're going to be running off of your bass chords, except they're going to give them a little more bulk. If you're asking the lead guitars to come up with some hooks or something, that's a different level you have to be aware. You have to tell them what you're expecting. You can't go in saying, here's what I, here's my song, good luck, because you're pretty much giving them carte blanche. You have to be aware of what it's going to do. 
at the end of that, say, say you've gone with the guitars and drums and everything else, they're going to give you a slightly mixed version of it, but it's still going to be pretty raw to listen to. Like if you were to put it on your iPad next to Garth Brooks and Carrie Underwood, and then you put your song on, and then you put on Sawyer Brown and then Joe Diffie, you're going to hear sonically yours is not where theirs is. Mm-hmm. That comes to a radio, actual radio release song, and that includes all of the above. It includes the full production value, all of the guitars, all of the the bass and, and the layering and the full song itself presented, but then they actually mix and master it for the radio, and that's where you get your depth and your sound and all of the extra bells and whistles that put it sonically to everything else out there. So when they, the listener hears it, there's no, wow, that's not where I expected it to be. I'm going to change the channel. They need it to be at that sonic value where people hear it and it's at the level that they've heard all day. That makes sense. And also, I've spoken with a couple of producers before. I've been very fortunate to get to know a couple. And usually the producers and the engineers and the session players, they have a vision and a path for where they want to take the song on and how they kind of see it. So the musician, I think, also has to stay a bit open-minded to kind of what they're saying and trust the producer, like you said, and also stay true to their sound in a sense. Like they can't let the producer go off the rails, essentially, with this is what I see, this is what we have to do instead of Absolutely. option A and option B. And we don't need to get into finding a producer that's going to do that because they're not going to do that. Like the right producer is going to be like, this is what we're going to do to your song. Yeah, it's going to cost this much, but do you want it to be good kind of a thing? Like, Yeah, because honestly, it'll come down to, to what you pay for. Mm-hmm. The average, uh, if I remember correctly right now, I think the average radio release just for the recording and mixing is you're looking anywhere between the world of, of anywhere between three to $6,000. That's exactly what Andrea said. Yeah. Another piece is, is uh, when you're in that, that stage with the producer, a lot of people come down with what's called demo love. Um, so the song you were talking about earlier. Home by Robbins Home, Avenue, right? yeah. You, you, you probably listened to that, that raw recording of it hundreds of times. It was, it was cool. It was thousands, thousands of times, <laughs> right? And to you, this is the song. This is the version of it, right? Mm-hmm. What happens is, and we call it demo love, is because, again, we're attached to this song. But now we go to the studio, and the studio knows what current radio is playing, what the current market is for that song. And what they'll do is they're going to change it so it will fit into that format. Now, their changes may not be wrong, but they are different. But because you've listened to this version so many times, you're going to raise your hand and say, well, no, that's not what I hear. So it is very, very important that you trust the producer and the musicians to take the song to that next leap. And you have to give yourself the freedom to know that your song is ideally 99% of the time moving for the better mm-hmm. and wait until you see the finished product. And if you hate it at the end, that's when you got to talk to the producer and say, I'm not digging this stuff. I'm not digging this direction. And if you want to force, if you want to force them to go the original way of that demo that you have, you just want it to sound cleaner and better Then that's, that's between you and the producer, but just be aware that that may not be where it needs to be to get to radio. That's very true. Demo love, I can feel that. You know, I've definitely been there with musicians sending me songs to be like, hey, is this radio ready? And I have to be like, no. You know, like it's not yeah, radio ready. Absolutely. It is a demo still. Or they got it produced for radio, but it's not there yet. But budget comes into it, which is absolutely. a whole other topic. But budget is a big thing too. So it's kind of like expectations versus reality sometimes. Yes. In a sense. 
now releasing the song. There's so many avenues a musician can release a song, like streaming to SoundCloud to radio, and choosing between if they want to release it to the online world or to radio. How should they go about doing that? That is a great question, and it's a long topic. And this is why it's two parts. Oh, this is why it's two parts. <laughs> so in today's world, like we are truly living in, in a golden age of music. Because there are literally thousands of places you can find music. You can find them on artist websites. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on iTunes, on Spotify. You can stream it. Like it, Music has now become a commodity. And it's available anywhere that you look. You now have to decide what you want to do with this song. Because that comes kind of into the overarching business plan of the artist. Is this your first foray into radio? Is this to try and introduce yourself to fans? You have to have a clear vision of what the song is. Prime example, Kayla Sheedy and I, uh, we wrote a song, and uh, and Scott McKay wrote a song called I Make Bad Look Good. And when we wrote it, the, the lyrical content and everything else was not really conducive to radio. And I told them this. I'm like, this is a great introduction song to get out on social platforms. Show them your brand. Show them this is who you are. But then something amazing happened, and radio was like, this is really cool. We want to play this, which defied the odds. Mm -hmm. And we're super grateful for everything radio did for it. But when we wrote that originally, when we were in the room, we all sat around the table saying, this is going to be a social media release. This is going to be to introduce people to the brand of Michaela Sheedy. And this is going to show them that this she is a, a take-no-nonsense girl boss who's going to do things her own way. And when radio started playing it, blew our minds because it broke a lot of the rules on radio. So you ne- again, you never know what's going to be the hit. But luckily, the, the team that recorded it made it able to go both ways. It was able to be a social media release. But if it was picked up, it was easy to be on radio. I also want to add something to that, too. I feel like it was the names on the song, too. Michaela Sheedy is fairly well known. And Clayton Bellamy is very well known. Absolutely. So maybe that is why radio also picked it up too. I mean, when I first heard it, I did add it instantly. But the reason why is because we knew who she was and we know who Clayton Bellamy is. And also she worked here for a while, you know? Yes. So yeah, it was catchy AF. I was like, hey, you know, I <laughs> well, thank you. was like, this is a good song as well. So there are like a little bit of a little bits of aspects of that into of like a name on a song versus the song itself. And that's a whole other podcast in the making. I have to figure that out, <laughs> like branding and stuff like that. But sometimes I recommend and I actually learned quite a bit with the CCMAs doing Radio 101. As someone being on the panel for that, I was really nervous, but I learned a lot from the musicians, actually. And I actually started to recommend that if a musician wants to see if the song will do well on radio, that maybe how does it do with a live audience? How does it do online first before they bring it to radio? Do you think that is good advice? Am I way off? Or how would you tell an artist to get their song ready for radio? Again, it comes down to the production value. Okay. Make sure that it is it is formatted and mixed for radio. Yes. Um, I always hone in on production. If it's yes. not good production, eh-eh. Absolutely. You and your guitar in, in an acoustic studio is not going to cut it in today's radio. It's just fact, unfortunately. Live, 100% different story, right? Or a writer's round, different story. But for format radio, if it's going in between Luke Bryan and Brett Kissel, you're going to stand out for all the wrong reasons. In today's format, right now, a lot of people are doing what we call uh, a soft launch. And it's introducing it onto streaming platforms. 
Now, what's happening on that front is Spotify or Apple Music or um, Amazon, what they're doing is they're releasing it to that platform and they're getting people to to listen to it. Tebe is a great example. He released his entire album on um, Spotify and they launched their first single to radio, but they didn't know what this follow-up single was going to be and they let the streams dictate what that was going to be. So when it came time to pick the next single, they compiled all the results from Spotify and Apple Music and everything else, and they found that the next song was easily 3 million streams higher than any other thing on the record. So that was the second single. So now when they go to radio, it's not, this is a brand new song, we've never tested it before, it, it's cold, we, we, it, we're hoping it's gonna do good. They're now coming to them with metrics saying this song has already been streamed over X amount of times on these platforms. The people want to hear it. It's a pretty safe bet. Would you spin it? And now radio is looking at that ROI, the return on investment to say, okay, if this many people liked it, let's give it a spin. We'll put it into light rotation. And then they start their own metrics on it to say, okay, well, we can now add it to mid spin or heavy rotation. And now it's it's all kind of part and parcel because the online streaming world is now kind of dictating what radio should listen to or at least give a shot to, which was never there before because now there's concrete numbers to back up what the artist is saying. I think that's kind of funny too because if it's been listened to that many times, I find that quite interesting. So I wasn't completely off the mark essentially when I said test it out on streaming sites first. 100%. And honestly, live crowds are a great indicator. In writer's rounds, you know when a special song happens because suddenly the room goes quiet. Conversations stop. People are listening. If you are singing a song and suddenly you can hear your own voice and you can't hear anything else in that that place. Terrifying. (laughs) It is terrifying, but it's also something magic and special is happening right now. And that means there's something to the song. And if you're singing a song and people continue their conversations and not paying attention, again, maybe maybe it's just a good song, not a great song. And you have to be honest with yourself and, and truly be honest with yourself saying, well, did I introduce it? Was it sound or, or is it just a good song and not a great song? That kind of testing goes well before you get even get to the studio level. That you, actually you, makes You got to definitely try, dry run the song in various situations to make sure that, hey, does this fit? Can I sing this? Mm-hmm. On Ty Baden's album, we've got one song where uh, we didn't even realize that we were pushing the upper ends of his vocal limit until he started singing it live. And he he had it at the end of his set, but his voice was shot by the end of the set, so we had to move it earlier on. Things we learned in a live setting that we never would have known if we hadn't dry and run the song. And I've heard some musicians say, well, we don't play that song live, but I wish we did. Like the best example, and with Clayton Bellamy's new album, Welcome to the Congregation, which is an amazing Great album. album. Oh my God. Like I still am listening to that. It's been like four times now in two days. I'm not kidding, Shard. I am obsessed. But there's a song called The Devil I Know. And I love that song. That was the first song on the album other than Commandment 11 and Resistors that I was like, boom, love the song. It's great, but I never heard it before because I've seen him live. And Gray Carroll said to me, he's just like, yeah, I love that song too. We never play it live. I wish we did. So it's even like, interesting you know like they pick and choose their songs to play on stage of course they only have like two hours and sometimes the album is a little bit longer than that especially when it's a full album not just an ep so i thought that was kind of interesting but one thing i want to talk about too is like is there a time of year a song will be more successful yes 
Seasonal um, writing. <laughs> there, there is seasonal writing. The, the biggest one I can give you is Christmas time. If you're an artist and you are planning on releasing original music in December, don't. The reason is, is because from December 1st until December 25th, it is 90% Christmas songs. It is just a thing that happens in North America. And if you are releasing brand new music, it will not even be looked at. <laughs> I, Sorry. It's, it's truth. It, because honestly, I'd much rather hear Santa's Got a Semi or, you know, Oh Holy Night or Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer than the new single from Insert Name Here Mm -hmm. because everyone's in that mood. If you are writing a party song, summer is the time to drop it because everyone's out of school. Everyone is now on spring break. Everyone, like you got to time it where there's going to be a big event or festival that can do it because party songs are great and all, but you notice that summertime, they're all about summer. They're all about flip-flops. They're all about beaches. They're all about sunshine because everyone's doing that. Everyone wants to live that, right? George Canyon, Daughters of the Sun, um, all of these, all of these songs are summer based. Whereas like you can hear it in February, which is a great kind of reprieve, but you're not living it. And uh, more kind of ballady or thinking songs are great when in, in Canada anyway, when the winter's here and we've got short days and, and long nights because we're in the evenings, we're much more able to be kind of retrospective. Now there's, there's a completely different school of thought where you always want to go against the grain. When everyone's dropping those kind of like slow ballads or something, drop a faster one. Be different because if 60 people are dropping a ballad, maybe you want to be different. Maybe the radios are going to add something a little more upbeat, right? So mm-hmm. the, the, the the honest opinion is, is there there is no bad time to release a song, but you've got to have a strategy behind it. You just can't release it to say this is the next single because it's a single. That's fair completely. I feel like Aaron Goodman's almost a good one to talk about about that because Bars and Churches, it's a beautiful song, but it came out in like May or something like that or in the spring summer season and I'm like it's a really slow song you know and I'm not saying it's a bad song I still listen to it and I still love it but I just thought it was a weird time for it to come out like I saw it as a February song you know or a March song right absolutely yeah still a great song yeah. and the strategy worked for him yep but um as as he did the year before they dropped Lonely Drum just before summer and that was a hit yeah because everyone just enjoyed that that beat that groove and something to dance to and something to just enjoy summer to. Once again, thanks so much for listening to Studio B this week. Well, Studio B was actually inspired by another show that I do that I am going to shamelessly plug away because it is what I love so, so much. And like I said, it was one of the main motivators for me to branch out and do this podcast, Studio B. It does not have a podcast itself due to copyright and company situations and stuff like that, but you can hear it 9 a.m. on Saturdays and 3 p.m. on Sundays on 99.7 Sun Country or at 11 a.m. on a.m. 1140 and you can also stream it live on hyperveronline.com. I am talking about the one and only Made in Alberta. So Sun Country and AM 1140 and Golden West, they are a proud supporter of Alberta country music. And we love shining the light on our local music. I branch out. I do some folk. I do some blues. I do some rockabilly. And I throw in some pop sometimes and some outlaw rock and greaser country. I love all genres. What can you say? That is what Studio B is all about as well. The other reason I'm bringing it up is because I want to say thanks to Sun Country for letting me use the studio to do the production of Studio B right now because my computer decided to crash at home. So I want to give a shout out to those guys and also make sure you tune in to Made in Alberta to hear some awesome Alberta 
talent and I support all genres and from all over the world but Made in Alberta is my baby and like I said it, it is one of the main reasons I got into Studio B and wanting to support and really help and encourage emerging and independent artists to pursue their dreams of music in any genre because I got friends in all genres of music so I'm not just gonna pinpoint any genre music in Studio B. It's for all genres, but made in Alberta. It is specifically for like country, blues, folk, and some pop country and rock country and outlaw country and all that kind of stuff. But make sure you join us made in Alberta on the weekends. You can check out uh, the Sun Country Facebook or the highriveronline.com blog for more information on how you can also be a part of made in Alberta if you have a new song or you have some awesome news you want to share or anything in between. Make sure you get a hold of me for Made in Alberta. So in your opinion, what is your recommendation on releasing a song? How do you like to do it? I really like the the current soft launch methodology. What I do with a lot of the artists I consult with and all this is I'm very fortunate to have a relationship with um, a, lo- a lot of radio DJs or on-air personalities. I don't know if DJs is even a thing anymore. Yeah, we kind of just call ourselves that because when you say on-air personality, on nobody air understands for- it. They're like, well, you're what? <laughs> um, but uh, it, it, it comes down to I actually get them involved in the writing process. It's like, hey, we've got this song. We think it's kind of neat. Would you mind listening to it? It's not done by any means, but we think it's kind of neat. And then what we actually do is we get the the actual radio people's feedback saying, this is really cool, but it'd be neat if we could kind of, you know, have a stronger chorus or, you know, it's really long. Maybe you can cut that to to, to something or it's like that instrumental is really long. We can modify it from there because we're still in the creation phase. Um, that's one of the methods I do. I love Spotify for the sheer fact that you can put your stuff out there and you can let the public decide. You now have measurable metrics, right? Take um, Wes Mack. He's got over a million streams on a couple of his new ones, right? Like those are some solid numbers to say, hey, people are listening. Back in the day, like way back when, if you could tell Johnny Cash, he could have a million people listening to his song before it got to radio, that, that would have blown his mind. Like, how is that even possible? Because they had to go and tour and beg and plead for the stations to give them a shot. And now you have measurable metrics. Or people mm-hmm. may not even listen to radio. Maybe they just listen to Spotify or something. You can get your music from anywhere now. And the fact is, is if people are listening to your music, that's fit complete. Like, that is mission accomplished as far as I'm concerned. That's what you want at the end of the song is for people to listen yeah. to it. <laughs> you want people to push that play it again button. Well, this is kind of my own curiosity, and I kind of just remember thinking about this. Sometimes our radio station, the one that I work for, we don't pick up songs sometimes. For example, Luke Bryan's Light It Up. We never got that song. We never played it. Why do some radio stations not play massive songs or even any songs at all? Is it that metrics thing again? It's kind of metrics, and it's kind of knowing your audience. Back when he did, back when Luke Bryan did that one, he had, I forget the one just before it, but it was doing really, really well. And what happened was, is a lot of radio stations will listen to it, but say that particular week, Kenny Chesney drops something new and Garth Brooks drops something new and Reba McIntyre drops something new and Carrie Underwood drops something new. You can only fit in two songs into the, the new rotation. And it, it honestly happens in music meetings where the, the team at the radio station is literally debating which song is going to happen. And sometimes the song gets cut. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the best ones I ever saw was, uh, it was a seminar at the CCMAs about three years ago. And they actually had a live music meeting where they put Kenny Chesney, Garth Brooks, uh, Carrie Underwood, oh, uh, Brett Kissel. And they had a full-on music debate, which went like six different ways. And they finally decided on song A because... 
based in the city where they this music meeting was happening and, and the listeners and the demographic that they were listening to their station, they had a stronger hit on that artist or that message at that time of year. And they felt that was the way to go because that was going to get people to turn to their stations. And the other songs, they went into the next meeting and the next meeting. And then eventually they'll, they'll fall off if after like three weeks they can't be added because the hype is gone. Another way to look at it is a lot of radio stations look at media base and it's an online tool, charts, that track everything. It's like Billboard, and it tracks the number of spins. A lot of radio stations don't even play the songs until they hit number 50 on the media base. And Yeah, and that's honestly why, uh, like, the local radio stations, you know, small-town Alberta, small-town Ontario, are so critical to the life cycle of independent artists because that's where they start getting the spins. Well, it's like we we can't do anything that we want, but for the most part, we're not tracked. I'm not 100% sure what that means. I'm going to be very honest, but we're going to have a podcast about that too. (laughs) I've been doing this for two years and I have so many questions. Yeah, we're not (laughs) tracked and we are very, very fortunate that we're able to get more emerging artists on. And like you said, they have to pick two songs for the rotation. We pick 13 songs a month for our Alberta rotation. And sometimes we only add in three or four out of like the six or seven that were sent or one or two because some of them just don't make the cut. They don't stand up to like the big guys like Luke Bryan or Brett Kissel or something like that. And we're like, so we'll keep in the other, if we add two songs, we'll keep in the other 11 songs that we've been playing for a while. But even those get stale after a while. So Exactly. Then... And that's that's where the new songs and rotation come into play. Yeah. Another thing is, is uh, let's take, uh, let's take Gord Bamford and Paul Brandt. Sometimes they'll release a single, which they'll, they'll play for a week and a half, but people really love their old stuff. Well, do you, do you keep pushing the new single or do you want to make your audience happy? Well, instead of playing the brand new Gord Bamford tune, or the brand new Paul Brandt tune, we're going to go back to some of their classics and their their regulars, you know, because that's what the people want to hear. And it kind of goes back to, yeah, when people are trying to get their songs out, what people want to hear. Uh, we're going to move on to promoting this song. We are going to have a whole other podcast on marketing your music and imaging and all that. But we should kind of touch on this with it started with a song because if it's their debut single and they want to promote the song, they've put so much money, so much effort. They've edited out their favorite parts of it. And they're like, we just want to get it out now. The world needs to hear this song. Let's talk about promoting the song. First of all, how far in advance should someone start promoting their single release? I've started to see a lot more, hey, pre-save my song about two weeks in advance. And then they're constantly saying pre-save, pre-save, pre-save. Yes. And that's kind of cool that they're able to do that as well. Like a lot of these distributing sites are able to help them with that, which I think is awesome. But how far in advance would you recommend someone start promoting their single? I think two weeks is kind of the general the general kind of yeah. crux of the matter. But honestly, you should start planning to release your single easily about a month or two months ahead of time because by the time you get to that social media blitz, you need to make sure that's already locked and loaded. So I would start really thinking about a month, at minimum a month ahead because You've got to have your photo shoot. You've got to have your social teasers. You've got to have all this content ready to go and set to go where you're already promoting the album. You're already doing radio interviews. You're already going out, pounding the pavement. You're already trying to get as much hype as you're doing. So if you're doing that, say, eight hours a day, do you really have another four hours a day to make sure that post looks all pretty to get it up on the socials? Probably not because you need to eat and sleep in there sometime too, right? So I would make sure that like you are ready to pull that trigger for all of this stuff, even once it releases, because once it releases, now you've got to 
different set of socials to start working on. A great example of uh, the pre-release side is I take a look at Mariah Stokes. Um, she, she's got a song out called Hands on My Body, and she did the single, and she she was working on that probably three months before it even got remotely to the release level with the plan and strategy behind it. And then she had a complete post-release strategy on top of it. I've seen so many artists spend so much money and time to make sure this thing sounds amazing and then just hope it does well when they send it out into the world. That's a scary thought, actually. Isn't it? It's like you get, you get, you get to the finish line and you're just kind of like, okay, there, that's it. No, you're like two steps away from the finish line. Like, make sure you have a plan to promote it. You know, uh, if you need to seek help, there, there's tons of people out there that can do the promotion for a project. Talk to a radio tracker, talk to a social media expert, come up with a plan, come up with something different that'll run for, say, two, three weeks. And that'll give your song a fighting chance against all of the new material. Because if you just go out there saying, hey, here's my new song. And everyone else has this like marching band and like giant like dance parties and everything else. Are they going to see your, hey, here's my song? You got to make sure you support something you've put so much hard work into or else all your effort and money is for a really expensive coaster on your coffee table. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) That is very deep, actually. I didn't think it was going to get that deep for a second there. (laughs) Where should they be promoting it? I would promote it in the places that you think people are going to want to listen. I, I, again, social media is not my forte, and I look forward to your podcast about that entire beast. That is a beast. Um, I haven't written that out yet, and I'm a little terrified <laughs> because... But, like, I would I would definitely stick to what they know. So I would definitely stick with the social medias. Um, I, as far as I know, as far as metrics, Facebook is still king. Um, so make sure you've got a... You're telling people on Facebook. Make sure there's engagement on it. You know, don't just put it out there and just like replies. You know, make sure that you're not over-promoting the single because people will get sick of that. Make sure you're still doing your own stuff. And oh, by the way, I've got the single coming out soon. Hey, here's the rest of my life and everything going else. And I'm getting ready for my single. Here's behind the scenes in the studio. Here's all this kind of stuff that you worked on. You're releasing it to to get these people to a fever pitch. Whereas when the date hits, it now drops. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instagram, that's, that's huge. Um, they've got those polls now where you can say, are you interested or are you not interested? You can see how many people are actually looking at your posts. Maybe that's not the format for you. Wherever you're getting the most engagement, I would definitely focus your efforts on that one. Do you recommend having a release party? I definitely think you want to celebrate the work you've put into it, but I would look at the scale of it. If it's like I've, I've celebrated release parties where it's literally the writers of the song, the artist and uh, the producer, the producer and the, the musicians saying thank you for all your hard work. If it's part of a bigger overarching project, like uh, an EP release, or it's part of a, a CD, or you're releasing yourself as an artist for this brand, I've seen major parties go up. I think, honestly, you definitely have to celebrate your, your, your achievements because no one else will. And this industry can honestly beat you up sometimes. Mm-hmm. So if you don't celebrate your wins, what else are you going to celebrate? So I do think a, a, an EP release is, is definite or a single release is, is cool, but I definitely make sure it's in scale with what you're trying to do. I've had a couple songs go to radio that did absolutely nothing, and it was just me and the co-writer, and we had a toast of whiskey. That works. Right? So we're going to have a whole other podcast about radio and streaming, like getting the song out there, but want to touch on it a little bit here too. Are there any sites or streaming platforms that you recommend for people to get their music out? Like, how do they do it? Because... Yeah, I know about like CD Baby and Distro Kid and all those kinds of things. Can you kind of explain how that works and how to get the song out to people? <laughs> Absolutely. So how it works right now is is 
we now have giant conglomerations or enterprises controlling music. Kind of like uh, the, 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 the radio personalities on stage or on radio. They have what they call radio trackers promote their music to the radio stations. Mm-hmm. The reason is, is a bunch of people go to the radio tracker. The radio tracker is their voice. So the radio stations are not answering 100 people every day, and they don't have time to now actually do their shows. They're now answering to one person, and that person can now distribute the information back to the artist that they contract. DistroKid and uh, CD Baby are the same way for the giant um, streaming sites. Uh, usually labels have uh, back-end systems to iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, where they can make sure that their artists are up and running. But for the average person, DistroKid and CD Baby are great because DistroKid and CD Baby are big enough for iTunes and Spotify to talk to, whereas they may, may not be, Shard Morrison may not be big enough to talk to Spotify. Because if you can imagine in a general radio world where they're going to get 200 phone calls a day, you're now dealing with a national, multinational entity. You're opening up their phone lines to like hundreds of thousands of individual artists saying, hey, can you play my song? They had to create something in order to say, like, we we can only talk to these levels or else we're not going to be able to put the service out that everyone wants to stream, mm-hmm. right? So now with podcasts and everything else, if you know the person that has the podcast or the playlist on that particular thing, you can go and talk to them in person if you wish, if you have that connection. But overall, they're using CD Baby and DistroKid to use their connections for our benefit. So I can now go to DistroKid and say, this is what I want to do. At that same time, DistroKid has 100 other people who have lined up for this release that they put up there. And now it's on the back end of Spotify doing one person a day, they're now saying, okay, we've got these hundred in, it's going to be released on this day, we push a button and all of it's live. It's now worth their time. It's worth that eight hours of the person behind the desk doing that and setting it up. So that's why we can't talk to Spotify, but there are things in place that can allow our music to get on those platforms for us to promote. I think that's a great way to wrap up this topic of it started with a song because now the song is out there. To the world. And everyone's listening to it and hopefully loving it. Absolutely. <laughs> or it gets it gets industry acclaim and public indifference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in, Shard Morrison. Is there anything else you want to talk about or mention that I may have missed or that's something you really want to put out into the world for emerging or independent artists? There is one, one small thing that I'll say, and it's something I've learned uh, over the years. In this industry, whatever you truly believe your time frame is on a project, minimum triple it. And the reason is because there's so many variables and moving parts and pieces. Allow yourself that that triple the amount of time in order to get it done. So if you think you're going to get a song out in a month, it's three months. If you think it's going to be three months, it's going to be nine months. Make sure that you always triple your timeline to make sure that it's a realistic goal. I like that. And that is a great way to end this podcast with Shard Morrison. It started with a song. Where can everybody find you? How can they get a hold of you? Uh, actually, text is the best way. Email is the second best way. But um, you're not you, giving your number out on I'm here. I'm not giving my number out <laughs> on here. You can reach me on Instagram. I'm lucky enough to be the only Shard Morrison on the planet. Uh, so if you type in Shard Morrison, I assure you I'm not the vegetable. Um, I am actually a human being. And uh, they can reach me at shardmorrison.com. That's C-H-A-R. That is perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) 